Hello, you are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the History of the Maghreb, History in the Maghreb series, and was recorded on July 16, 2019 at the Centre d'études Maghrebina Tunis, CEMAT. In this episode, Dr. Mariam Ktad, CEMAT Assistant Director, interviews Luke Scallon, PhD candidate of history at Northeastern University, about his research entitled France's Shattered Empire, Fascism and Republicanism in Colonial Tunisia, 1931-1944. Look, the floor is yours. Thank you, Miriam. My project begins with the events of February 4th, 1934. This was a sort of watershed day in interwar French history because on this day there were large-scale protests against the Constituent Assembly, often by far-right parties, many of which were sympathetic to fascists. And this is, of course, in the wake of the Great Depression. Now, this is sort of a complicated discussion about the emergence of fascism in France before moving on to uh, my work in Tunisia. And fascism in France emerged for a number of reasons. Above all, the Great Depression, the sort of Pyrrhic victory following World War One, cultural changes that many people thought were too liberal and were opposed to, and general political corruption. And so... My work focuses really on two major parties, one of which was pretty much definitively fascist. One of them is a much more complicated subject. Um, these are the Parti Populaire Français and the Parti Social Français. Parti Populaire Français is the more open and shut one. And this has been investigated in, in, to some extent in Algeria in Samuel Kalman's book, French Colonial Fascism, um, about uh, the fascist movement among the French in Algeria from the 1920s up until the outbreak of World War II, and to lesser extent as well in Tunisia, in Carolyn Campbell's book, Political Belief in France, which is mostly oriented around metropolitan France and the role that gender played in mobilizing fascism, but to also in Tunisia, where gender was a much less mobilizing effect due to the influence of patriarchy, um, the sort of rural agrarian life that took place in French colonial Tunisia among the French community. Now, my work really hinges on the June 1940 fall of France and the rise of Vichy as well as the Free French. Now, when France fell in 1940, the vast majority of the French colonial empire wound up rallying to the Vichy regime. And many historians argue that this is because uh, Vichy was viewed as the legitimate French state. Its government was based in Vichy as northern France and western France were occupied by the Germans who were based in Paris. And I find that this argument doesn't quite uh, explain the complexities of the interwar and World War II French colonial empire. And the reason for this is that not all colonies rallied to Vichy. In June 1940, de Gaulle made his call to continue the war from the empire, and very, very few French heeded his call. But there were a few colonies that did. New Caledonia was one of them in the Pacific, and there was Cameroon, Equatorial Africa. And the very existence of these rallying to de Gaulle suggests that the free French were also viewed as the valid French government. And so it creates this sort of complicated question. And I, I really ask, well, why did 
most colonies work with fichi. And because of this, I'm using Tunisia as a case study for my research, because not only did it nearly immediately rally to the Vichy regime, but it also was later occupied by the French and the Germans. And there was quite a large fascist community here. In doing so, I look at more enduring forms of the radical or reactionary right from the 1930s to the Vichy period, because my question is based on why did these col colonies support Vichy, I have to look before the war into the war itself. And so what I'm trying to do here is look at this sort of far-right community among the French above all, but also among Italians, and sort of stretch it instead of saying, well, this didn't exist before Vichy and then it was imposed. Um, now, French fascists are an interesting case because unlike the Italians who wanted to reform the Roman Empire, especially around the fourth shore based in Libya, and you have the shores in Dalmatia, they wanted to occupy Corsica and so on, the French looked to a sort of feudal, agrarian, pastoral view of what France should be. This is often related to the old regime before the French Revolution. This also contrasts with the German Nationalist Socialists, looked towards the medieval Teutonic uh, Knights who fought in the East and expanded the German Reich. And Italians are really crucial to my discussion of fascism among European settlers in the 1930s and 40s. Most important was this sort of Italian peril that took place. Uh, this emerged at the end of the 19th century as Italy was vying for a position to take Tunisia as a colony before it was signed with the Bardot Treaty to the French in 1882. However, France wound up getting it, and there was this claim made in the 1920s, 1930s, that Tunisia is a an Italian colony occupied or policed or managed by the French. And a large part of this is just how many Tunisians were here, uh, just how many Italians were here. Tunisians were in the millions, of course, but in the late 1920s, there were around a, I mean, more than half of the European population of Tunisia was Italian. And this changed by the early 30s. And so because of this, there was a sort of balancing act that was taking place because French settlers felt deeply threatened by Italians here. They thought that Italians would rally to Mussolini, the fascists, and then want support occupation, which the vast majority of Italians here were deeply sensitive to Italian fascist sympathies and absorbed them quite well. Those who were opposed to Italian fascism were often ostracized within their communities. And so there's this balancing act colonially during the a communal balancing act between European settler groups between the wars. This doesn't even begin to engage with the large number of Tunisians who are fighting for independence, as well as the large Jewish community based primarily in Tunis, but also Jerba. It is very peculiar that you actually focus on fascism in North Africa, and more specifically on fascism among French settlers in North Africa as a research subject. So what made you focus on this very specific and particular perspective, and what was your intellectual trajectory in reaching this point? Yeah, there's quite a few things going on here. I'm trained as a French colonial historian before anything else. I don't have formal training as a North Africanist, although I've done a lot more work in it uh, now. But my first interest in thinking about fascism came from Roger Griffin's article in the journal Fascism a few years ago called Decentering Comparative Fascist Studies. And in it, he argues that scholars of comparative fascism need to think about more than just our core cases of fascism, which we would define as 
Italy and Germany and maybe France, it depends who you ask, and instead focus on further movements in Eastern Europe, for example, or Northern Europe, Scandinavia, Norway, Sweden, Croatia, the Balkans, and so on. But one thing that I found was missing from his discussion of comparative fascist studies and the need to decenter it was there was very little reference to colonial empires. And Generally, fascism isn't really associated with colonial empires, although it is very much a part of the interwar political landscape. Generally, European empires have been viewed as authoritarian, disciplinarian, uh, military rule, and so on, but not quite fascist. And I stopped to think about why could this be? And as a North African, or as a French colonial historian, North Africa is often, or obviously, very important to my work because this was really the core of the French colonial empire, right? But what really pushed me to work on Tunisia was I was working through Edouard de Ladier's prison journal that he wrote during World War II, and he described an execution by the, by the Parti Populaire Français in Tunisia, in Tunis itself, of one of his friends who was living there. Now, I thought this was really interesting, because as far as I was aware, the Parti Populaire Français was only active in France. Now, this view of mine was also challenged by Samuel Kalman's book, French Colonial Fascism, published in 2013, and so it's very clear that they were active and strong in Algeria, especially in Oran. But this idea of the PPF being active here in Tunisia was something new to me, and I wanted to investigate this further, because given that they had the ability to full-on participate in an execution, suggested that they had a great deal of power here. And I thought that was something that was really interesting and thought that needed to be discussed further. The other thing was the sort of question of mine about the Free French and the sort of fall of France. Why is Vichy the de facto legitimate French government? I didn't think that this stood up to scrutiny. And I think that a lot of my work has been influenced by Eric Jennings, who wrote a book about Vichy France and the French colonial empire more broadly, as well as a book on the Free French in Central Africa. So can you elaborate more on the Parti Populaire Française? Can you elaborate more on the relationships between the Parti Populaire Français and the Metropole? Uh, did the party's Tunisian delegation simply follow orders from Paris, or did they manage to chart their own trajectory? This is a really interesting question, because often orders were given from Paris. Um, the leader of the party, Jacques Derouillot, was initially a communist who switched over to fascism and was very sympathetic to what would later become the Axis. Um, he was sympathetic to the nationalists in Spain, the Italian fascists, the German national socialists, as well as the conservative monarchies of Eastern Europe and the Balkans. But there was a great deal of difference as well. Um, the Parti Populaire Français in France obviously supported these different countries, but they also tried to distance themselves from anti-Semitism. Um, one thing that was there was this idea that, yeah, Jewish people are metek, they're they're sort of citizens, but they're not really, they're like this foreign body within the nation state. But they were also assimilationists saying, well, we can bring these people in. They can become French by abandoning their traditions. This was not the case in Tunisia. The French settlers here were deeply anti-Semitic. There was a large Jewish population here, and 
they thought that it was a terrible thing for these people to even possibly become French. They were opposed to the Khemi Decree in Algeria, which gave rights to citizenship to Jews, and they thought that the only people who should be citizens should be the French. They were also opposed to the granting of French citizenship to Italians. And this is a more complicated subject that I'll touch on a bit more later, but this Italian question is really interesting because Jacques Dariot was very much in favor of working with the Italians. But the North African delegation, and especially Tunisia, the North African delegation was led by a man named Vico Aigi. He was Corsican-born, uh, and so he was very sensitive to Italian claims of expansionism. And Aigi and much of the rest of the Tunisian delegation was opposed to any sort of concessions to the Italians. And because, as I said, this was sort of a communal balancing act taking place. And there was this idea that if concessions were made to Italy, it was likely that these concessions would wind up with the Italian absorption of Tunisia, which would really wipe out any possibility of French rights as they stood because they were in a very privileged position here. By the mid-1920s, Italians were no longer allowed to own land in Tunisia. And should Italy take over, this situation would likely be reversed. And so this was a massive difference within the Parti Populaire Français. It came to a head in early 1939, late 1938, when Jacques Dario really insisted on working with Italians and large numbers of the party left, as well as Victor Ahiki, who was replaced because they just could not stomach the idea of working with Italian fascists because it was a threat. You already touched upon the idea of Italian influence. So can you elaborate more on how did the Italian fascists reach out to members of the Parti Populaire Français or the Parti Social Français in Tunisia? Yeah, one thing here is that the Italian fascist community, I mean, nearly all Italians in Tunisia were fascist. And this is not, I don't mean this as a slur, but many of them were party, card-carrying party members, and they were deeply engaged with this sort of Italianness taking place at the time, Italianatita. But the problem to engagement is that they were heavily discriminated against with the, by the French. And so they often took orders from Mussolini's fascist party, but these orders did not carry on to the French. The French fascists did not really listen to Italy. They didn't listen to Mussolini. But because of the number of French or of the number of Italian settlers here, it really created a fascist milieu and it really percolated under the surface. And it, I mean, sharing cafes, shops, stands, things like that with Italians every single day, these sort of ideologies influenced the French, of course, because it was part of everyday life. And I think that in itself is really interesting that I think that colonial Tunisia needs to be understood as part of the fascist world and not something apart, although fascists were not necessarily in government here. So... Despite the links to the Italians, the Parti Populaire Francais and the Parti Social Francais seem to be very specific and to bear very specific claims. How did the fascist project in Tunisia differ from that in Italy, France and Algeria? Was there anything that set them apart from these other groups? Yeah, this is a really good question. I think I've discussed a little bit of the sort of conceptions of fascism in Italy and France here. Um, Italy with this sort of need for the rebirth of the Roman Empire, concerns over Trieste, this idea of being disadvantaged by the First World War because they start out on the side of the Germans, the Austro-Hungarians, and the Ottomans, and then switch to the, the Entente midway through. But they did not 
necessarily get the territorial acquisitions that they had hoped. They wanted to take Dalmatia, which was added to what became Yugoslavia, and they wanted Trieste, which was an important port, and these are not things that they accessed. And so Italian nationalism rose to the fore, and Mussolini took power in the early 1920s. And so there was this real sense of territorial expansion, irredentism, rebirth that was important to Italian fascists. In French fascists, there was also a sense of rebirth, but there was nowhere near the same sense of irredentism. There was this not this worry about claiming lost land or anything like that. Instead, it was a look to rebirth Catholicism, this pastoral view, old folklore, Jeanne d'Arc, things like that, right? And then in Algeria, it's a bit more complicated because Algeria also had deep communal relations, although the French had a much more solid footing there than they did in Tunisia, I think. And so there was this birth of an idea that we could call Latinite. Um, this idea of Latin-speaking peoples of the Mediterranean consisted of a coherent group in Algeria. This includes the French, obviously, Italians, who were not as large of a community as they were here in Tunisia, but they were still prominent nonetheless, Spanish, and then also included were Maltese, which is an interesting group because their language is sort of a offshoot of Tunisian Arabic, although it's heavily influenced by Sicilian and English and French as well. And so there's this sort of uneasy working together taking place, but fascist movements were very strong in Algeria, especially in Oran, and they viewed themselves as being more French than the French, often based in the land where they claimed was theirs and that they worked it and so they deserved it. And of course, it was not necessarily them that worked it, but Arab Algerians and Amazigh. So there's this complicated thing going on. But I think, and this is something that I reiterate, what sets Tunisia apart is this intercommunal relations between Europeans, these tensions that took place. There was really a concern about what the future might hold if Italy could take over. Now, there was not the same level of Italian designs over Algeria or over Morocco or anything like that. It was firmly French. The French knew this and they were happy to work with that. Tunisia was much more tenuous. There was also this sort of, uh, I mean, anti-Semitism was very similar in Algeria and Tunisia as well. They were deeply anti-Semitic in contrast to French fascists back in the metropole were deeply anti-Semitic as well, often Italians were, but it exhibited itself in a different way. In Algeria and Tunisia, French were often much more vocal about it, they would refuse to engage with Tunisian Jews and so on. Another thing that sets them apart, I think, is the strategic importance of Tunisia and the Mediterranean. Italy understood this, and so did the French. And in doing so, there was sort of this idea that Tunisia needed to stay French in order to guarantee the French position in the Mediterranean. And when these parties are really taking off, takes place in 1936, 1937, 1938. This is also the period of the Front Populaire, this sort of left-wing movement that was initially founded to fight off against fascism in France. Much of the impetus for the creation of the Front Populaire was these February 4th, 1934 events. So there's this understand, I mean, within the French themselves, back in the metropole, there was this sort of uneasiness with its position in Europe being run by the I mean, the Front Populaire was uneasy with its position in Europe because it was flanked by a Spanish civil war um, where it supported the Republicans to the dismay of the Parti Populaire Francais and the Parti Social Francais, which both supported the nationalists. But then it was also surrounded by National Socialist Germans, Italian fascists as well. And this was really unpleasant to the, the Front Populaire because they found that these 
were a threat. I mean, and because of that, it was necessary to hold Tunisia. And so this is a case of French fascists in Tunisia and the Metropolitan Administration sort of agreeing on something, but for very different reasons. And I think that this sort of uneasiness with the Metropole is also a case that separates it from Italy, because the Italian fascist diaspora was often very much in favor of what Metropolitan Italy was doing, where this is not necessarily the case for the French diaspora in North Africa looking at the metropolitan governance. You talked a lot about the French fascist party's relationships, both with the metropole and with other colonial uh, powers. Can you tell us more about how they did engage with the Tunisian national movements and their views about Tunisia's independence? So the French fascist parties were deeply opposed to any sort of Tunisian independence. And this is something that's really interesting too because in different fascist movements in Algeria they often looked at the French administration in Tunisia and said this is an example of what not to do because if you're this lenient with with indigenous people then they'll overthrow you because this is I mean these 1930s is the period of the rise of Neo Destour, the emergence of Abu Bourguiba. Although the Tunisian national movement existed long before this by some 20 years or so, this is the time where it really takes off and gains a large traction among the Tunisian population. And the Tunisian national movement, I mean, with French fascists, they often acted deeply paternalistic to Tunisians. They felt that they were fathers that needed to lead these naive children on a different path, which is absolutely silly because Tunisians knew what they needed. But this conflicted with the French fascist ideals of what Tunisia should be. And so often fascist groups would hold different things like charity drives or picnics out where they would feed Tunisians during drought or they would have soup kitchens and things like this, essentially to stave off this sort of threat of national independence because the idea was that if we help Tunisians, then they'll like us and they'll think that we need to be here. But there's also a complicated relationship as well because, for example, after one Parti Populaire Francais meeting, a number of members went to a cafe and they were discussing how it was necessary to overthrow the French government and how messed up it is that the Front Populaire can stay in power and that they're sucking up to Stalin and that they're leading to all these problems in Europe. And so that the French government needs to be overthrown and replaced by this fascist administration. There was a Tunisian in the cafe and the French policeman reported on this and they arrested the Tunisian for getting ideas about overthrowing the French administration and instead of arresting the French fascists, who were the ones actually discussing what was taking place. And so it's this sort of thing that Tunisians sort of get pulled into. But Victor Ahigui, in one of his talks here in Tunis, he had discussed that if he were in power, the neo-distor movement would end within the week. And so there's this really strong sense of violence underlining this French paternalism as well. Yes, we'll help you Tunisians, but if you try anything, we'll kill you, right? And so this is this really dangerous line to be treading. And to what extent were Tunisians engaged with these parties? Yeah, as I discussed a little bit, there was the case where Tunisians would exist in the same milieu as a number of fascists. I mean, a number of these members owned small shops, small stands that Tunisians would often enter and buy goods and then leave and what have you. But at some 
fascist organization meetings, there would be a few Tunisians there. Now, this was illegal for them to attend. And so they would often be escorted out by police or banned to attend further ones. But there was this sort of interest here. And I think that it wasn't just French fascist parties that are important here, but Italians as well. Because there's when we look at World War II, there's also this question of collaboration, right? There's this idea that if fascist parties, whether it's French, Italian, German, so on, can dislodge the French colonial administration, then whatever that replaces them will be weaker than what currently exists, and then the Tunisian independence movement will be much easier to attain. Now, this isn't a rare idea. This existed in Indonesia, it existed in India, it existed in Algeria, it existed really all over the colonized world. And so I don't think it would be fair to criticize anybody for this, because it was really... I mean, it makes sense, right? And so this idea of collaborating with fascists in order to dislodge the colonial administration, which was firmly Republican, which was firmly liberal, even if there were fascist sympathizers within it, um, especially during the Vichy years when it was a quasi-fascist government. And this is especially interesting during the Second World War because take Abu Bourguiba, for instance. In the mid-40s, he was, when after he had been arrested by the French, he wound up up being handed off to the Italians who were based in Rome. And Benito Mussolini gave him a tour of the city of Rome and really pushed him to side with Italian fascists during the Italian and German occupation of Tunisia during late 1942, early 1943. And he refused to do so, but it wasn't simply because he was opposed to fascism, although he was in principle. His reason for it was because at this point it was clear that the Axis were going to lose the war. And so it would be better not to face the retribution of the French after losing the war and instead to work with the French at the time, as well as the Americans and the British, and push the uh, Germans and Italians out. And when I'm talking about the French here that Bourguiba was favoring, he was deeply opposed to the Vichy administration. The one that he favored was de Gaulle's Free French, based out of London and out of uh, Brazzaville in the Congo. And so he worked closely with Americans, he worked closely with the British in doing this. But there was a real desire to collaborate with the Axis because of the idea that it would be easier to dislodge them than to dislodge the French colonial administration. Um, finally, you have been conducting archival research at the National Tunisian Archives for the summer of um, 2019. Which archival materials have you found most interesting and how do they connect to your larger project? I think that the most interesting materials are often the most personal ones. I mean, a lot of what I'm working with are police records. And so there's a lot of discussions of meetings of these fascist parties where the police off the colonial policeman will go in, he will say, a meeting took place on this date at this time at the party headquarters on Rue de Marseille, right downtown with all the, I mean, it's right in the center these days. And then they'll go on to say, this person spoke, this person spoke, this person spoke, and then it ended with everybody standing up, seeing the Marseillaise, and then leaving. There was no issues at the end. And this is how the vast majority of these documents go. But every now and then, most often when there are important speakers, generally from higher positions in the Parti Social Francais or the Parti Populaire Francais, there will be almost, I mean, really detailed notes on what these speakers are saying. And they'll be subtitled too. There'll be discussion on French foreign policy and French attitudes towards Tunisians and French attitudes towards this and why we differ from the French administration on X, Y, and Z. 
These are really interesting because you can almost distill party goals in doing so and really make sense of what French fascists wanted to accomplish here. I think other records that are really interesting are those dealing directly with intercommunal relations and practice. So not just, oh, we don't like Italians because they're occupying our land and they're coming here and there's too many of them. Instead, I think one really interesting document that I came across or collection of documents was that there was a group of Italian women at a train station in Beja, I believe, or somewhere over there. And they were waiting, or they claimed to have been waiting for their husbands to be returned from concentration camps. Because this was after the onset of World War II in in France, the time of the phony war. And so Italians were viewed as a threat and were interned. And on the train were a number of French sailors traveling to Bizert. And when the Italian women discovered this, they began to sing the Italian fascist national anthem and wound up throwing rocks at the French and getting into a big fight. And luckily nobody was killed. But I think that this sort of outpouring of violence that took place is a really important part of understanding interwar Tunisia because of the difficulties in intercommunal relations, not just with the French and the Italians, but also their relationship with Tunisians, their relationship with Maltese, their relationship with Tunisian Jews, and so on, and very rarely with Amazigh. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themaghrebpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the Semat newsletter at www.sematmaghreb.org, or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.